Stop fighting with one another, for goodness sakes. Let's work together. We really need that. It's We are fighting a war, and those people who criticize that commentary are flat out wrong. We've been invaded by a virus. We're in war against a virus. And if we fought World War II the way we're fighting this virus, we the Nazis would have taken over the world back in 1944. We would have lost that war. We are not fighting together. We're not doing this as one unit. We need to do that over the coming six months and we'll defeat the virus, but we gotta do it together. All righty. Welcome in, boys and girls, another fine episode of Alabama Politics This Week. Yep, I yep. am Josh Moon. That is... Dave Person. What's up? How's it going, Dave? It's another day in quarantine, baby. I'm just taking it one day at a time. That's all. One day at a time. Well, I got to tell you, I am pissed. Ah, uh, wait a minute. I, am, I, come, I come into this fine podcast really, really angry Now, today. let me just... Uh, well, matter of fact... Well, before you go any further, let's just stipulate. Uh-huh. Let's just stipulate something. Anger okay. and rage are like two of the things you do best from what I've from what I've noticed. So you're saying that you're at another level of anger and rage. Oh yeah. I, okay. Well, so I, I my anger and rage is 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 often very well contained. Okay. okay? So I, I, I express my anger and rage through my, my columns. Yes. Uh, when I write about people. Otherwise my life is is pretty uh, you know, I, I'm a pretty optimistic, uh, you know, happy-go-lucky sort of But see, of guy. that's what makes it so uh, effective and so cool because, mm-hmm. like, you know, a lot of times when we're engaging or when I'm reading your columns, you're like, I can mm-hmm. see the smoldering. There, there's something smoldering <laughs> there. And I'm like, that is so cool the way he can be articulate while I can tell he's seething mm-hmm. underneath. But you're saying that this oh. is, like, beyond that. Yeah. Okay. There was a there was a moment earlier today, man, where uh, I mean it was I, I could I could literally feel the top of my head. It was so hot. Oh, wow. I could feel it. Okay. it was, there was so much heat there. Oh, I was so mad. Oh, I was so I, mad. I gotta know what, uh, and, what has and, caused that. I need to know uh, what is called Robin Hood, uh, TD Ameritrade, and and a few other uh, brokerage houses uh, there that uh, that today shut down, shut down, shut down the purchase of certain stocks uh, in an effort to very blatantly, blatantly manipulate uh, the market in order to save uh, hedge funds and billionaires and Wall Street elites. Uh, I mean, listen, that is not hyperbole. That's 100% what happened. They shut down, uh, Robin Hood being the biggest one, because that's the one that most people like myself, I'm not a a stock market person. genius you know i'm not a i'm not a a big market player um but i i got into doing this uh probably probably a little more than a year ago uh decided i was i needed a way to kind of make a little more money uh, on the side and decided i was going to start incrementally and very safely uh studying the market trying to figure out how to invest uh wisely in stocks and things uh with the eventual goal of this being something that generates enough money to where it would, you know, be something that I would be able to sustain myself, you know, maybe have a nice college fund for, uh, for Andy Lou, my daughter and, uh, you know, or something along those lines while being very safe. You know, I had a minimum amount of money and I, I gotta say over the course of time, 
I've been pretty successful at this. Okay. Uh, I mean, not, you know, I'm not Warren Buffett or anything, but I'm not using Warren Buffett money. Mm-hmm. Um, a few, a few months back, one of the, one of the ways that I learned, uh, a lot of this stuff was through Reddit and the d- various investing subreddits, uh, that are there, uh, following along with people who clearly knew more. Uh, and there, there are a bunch of, of very informative, uh, you know, straight, uh, narrow, uh, subreddits where people teach you, you know, or you, you can learn, they don't necessarily teach you, but you can learn from watching them and listening to what they talk about, how to gauge different things. And then there are some other ones like wall street bets, uh, which is another subreddit on there in which these people are making bets on things. Mm. You know, they're making, they're making big gambles. Mm. They're, you know, they're, one of their big things is, you know, the YOLO attitude, which, which is just dumping everything they've got into one stock with the hopes that it's going to take off and then they can pull it all out and they'll have, you know, made a substantial amount of money in a very short period of time. But so in following along with this stuff, I begin to see some very interesting theories about, uh, how they were going to start attacking companies that had shorted uh, another, uh, you know, or taken on stocks that had been shorted by a bunch of hedge funds uh, out there uh, because these hedge funds had taken a position that was technically illegal, according to SEC rules. Uh, one of those being GameStop. Uh, and it was, there was like 138% short on, on GameStop, uh, GameStop stock. And so their goal was, is they were going to everybody buy it, bump that price up, squeeze out those people that had, that had shorted this thing and make billions and billions of dollars for themselves. Um, and so that's basically what's been happening for the last few weeks or for the last few days is the price of GameStop stock has gone through the roof because uh, the roughly 2 million people that subscribe to this this subreddit have been buying up stock left and right. Some of those people are very, very wealthy people. And so they bought a lot more stock and GameStop has started going, you know, started going through the roof. Uh, on the other side of this, all of these hedge funds uh, that are run by some of the biggest you know, billionaires and Wall Street elites out there uh, started taking on losses. Uh, and man, they tried every trick in the book to to shut it down. They shut down trading. They shut down this. They shut down that. Uh, and then today, ultimately, mm-hmm. they pulled the plug completely on people uh, on the Robinhood app and on a few others from being able to buy any any stock. You could sell. You could sell all you wanted because that helped the hedge funds uh, to to get the the money to get the price back down to where they could get themselves out of this mess that they have for themselves. Uh, but you couldn't do anything else. And you couldn't buy anymore which was what was driving the price up. And so people like me, uh, who, you know, I, there was nothing illegal about what it did. Matter of fact, what I did is what the stock market is supposed to be about. Uh, you know, what was looking for a good opportunity, making that investment price goes up because everybody else agrees that it's a good investment in this company, uh, for whatever reason. And you make some money off of this. Mm-hmm. So we were looking at five figures or so, uh, in gains, by early this morning, uh, and you know that that fell off tremendously after they shut it all down. And uh, myself and uh, I'll tell you how bad it is. It has drawn the ire of uh, AOC, 
Ted Cruz, Dave Portnoy, and uh, Don Jr. So when you've got those guys all on the same side saying this is fraud and this is wrong, uh, then you know some some real BS has gone down somewhere. And that's what I was going to say in the story that I'm looking at. Uh, those uh, AOC and, and Cruz in particular are clearly on the same page. So there's got to be there's got to be something, some clear illegality here. Uh, but mm-hmm. I guess I want to know. So, what's the re- first of all? Do you have any recourse? I'm, and and obviously, let me say, uh, I am not. I I have not done what you've done. I'm not on Robin Hood. I don't do any of that kind of uh, uh, home and you know home investing or yeah. trading or anything like that. So, what 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 recourse do you have? Well, um, well, I mean, first of all, you know, I haven't lost any money. So, you know, I'm not going to lose and there's, and it's, it's impossible at this point for me to lose any money on this. So, uh, but I, I consider what I, you know, the fact that I had made this good investment and by all other, uh, indications here and by any sort of normalcy, I should be making, you know, a lot of money today. Uh, you know, I consider that a loss, but, uh, so I, and I think some others agree. Now there have been some talks of uh, congressional hearings and of uh, class action lawsuits yeah, against uh, Robin Hood yeah. because I I got I can't imagine that this is not uh, a manipulation that it that that falls outside of SEC rules. I, I just can't imagine that you can because one of their biggest investors at Robin Hood was one of the hedge funds that had invested so heavily into GameStop, uh, and it's not just GameStop. It, there there are several other. Um, Stocks that were also out there, um, AMC, you know, the movie theater chain mm-hmm. was one of them. Uh, American Airlines was another one. BlackBerry. Uh, BlackBerry, uh, you know, BlackBerry is a good investment uh, right now because the, the stock is very low and they have kind of reformed themselves uh, into, and, and they're going to be an entity that teams with Amazon on some projects in the future. And so, uh, you know, that was the reason why I, I put money into these things. Right. And uh, But it was, and so now, they took that ability away from people simply to save other people from losing money, which is not the way this is supposed to work. Uh, and so I, I, I got to assume that there's going to be some penalties paid here. And I, I'm guessing that what they decided was is, Hey, we would rather, we would rather pay these penalties uh, and be the bad guys in this than, than have all of our people lose millions of dollars. So if there's a class action lawsuit, you're going to join it, obviously. No doubt about it. Yeah. No doubt okay. about that. Yes. I'd have, yeah. Yeah. I'd even chip in some for the attorney on this one. Uh, I mean, it was, I'm seriously, it was, yeah, I, it's one of the worst examples of there being two sets of rules for people. Uh, I mean, and really there have been a number of examples leading up to this that show you how, how the stock market is stacked against the little guy uh, and, and is and is really controlled by the big players there and how they manipulate things. And um, I mean, it, it, it was just blatant manipulation for the last three or four days uh, on the ha- on behalf of the hedge funds. And then to have, uh, you know, the, the brokerage houses as well, just jump in on top of it was, is really something to see. But so you know, listen, I, I know people aren't, aren't here for, for this. So, but well, but still, it does, you know. but it does, I think speak to, I mean, I think there are a couple of, things that we can extract from this that, you know, extend beyond the Josh Moon saga, right? So the first thing, <laughs> right. the first thing would be what we've already established, which is that this is perceived, uh, this is perceived to be a bipartisan problem. This is not just a problem for, for uh, progressives or liberals, it's a problem for conservatives. So that's, that's point number one. Huh? Now, point number two would be this. 
Does this not really, though, when you look at when you look at American capitalism writ large, mm-hmm. does this not seem to be a familiar theme? Is it not the case that historically, when it comes to how governments relate to uh, the citizens, when it comes to uh, economics, that it's always weighted toward it's always weighted toward the big guys. Does it not? Does it not seem to be consistent that the big guys, and whether you're talking about at a national level or even a state level, looking at a state like Alabama, where the 1901 Constitution uh, was specifically designed to enfranchise a group of rich people and disenfranchise every freaking body else? I mean, this is this is capitalism. This is what it does, and which is yeah. why I say to people, you know, uh, you know, capitalism as it has been executed, it certainly in the United States is a farce. It's a farce. Mm-hmm. It's based on a number of false premises that that do not line up with with the propaganda around capitalism. Oh, it's a it's hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, if you just go back to the to the crash of '08. Um, and you, and you look what was done there, uh, we could have very easily at that point in time taken the exact same amount of bailout money. And instead of just handing that over to the banks, we could have set up a system where we said, Hey, listen, uh, we know that this is a mortgage crisis. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to pay your mortgage. All right. You come to us. Everybody's about to lose your house. You come to us. Uh, we'll pay off that mortgage to the bank. The The money's still going to wind up in the bank's hands. Uh, but now you're going to be able to keep your house. Uh, you're going to be able to have home ownership going forward in this uh, that that cr- increases the wealth of, of, you know, of the consumer. Uh, and I mean, think about how much better off we would have all been had that taken place. Great. Uh, but that's not what that's not how they think. That's not how they think about things. Uh, it is always about protecting the institution uh, and, and the people at the top of the food chain here. Uh, and it's never about the, the little guy. Uh, in this, you know, which which is what I have always argued. Uh, it's always just driven me nuts. These people who, you know, uh, the middle class people and working class people in Alabama who hate AOC. Shut up. I mean, if, if I I guarantee you, if I took AOC's quotes and put them and, and tagged them as Don Jr. saying them, these people would be like, yeah, look at Don Jr. on my side. Yep. You know, I yep. mean, and so. That and that's what you're right. It's it is this capitalism that we practice here is not set up for for working class people. It's set yeah. up. Uh, the game is rigged and always has been rigged uh, for the people at the top. Um, and, and you know a lot of people have preached this, and you know, and they have fooled a lot of people, a lot of working class people, into believing that if you ask for or demand your portion of this pie. Here, that somehow you're doing something wrong, right. you know that you're, you know, oh, you're you're being greedy, or right. you're being, oh, you're want you want to be a socialist, right. you know, right. get want something that's not yours or whatever. In the meantime, yeah. uh, how many millions and millions of dollars just today was handed over to rich people just because we didn't want them to lose that much? Right. So you know the way I look at history, Josh, 
The, and the reason I'm so adamant when I say that capitalism is a false premise, at least as it's been executed in this country, is first of all, you have a country that was built based on stolen land. Stolen land. Then you have the land that was developed based on the backs or built on the backs of stolen people. Not just the, not just the land, but a lot of the infrastructure on the land, on stolen people. So how in the world can you even talk about, you know, uh, how we've, we've, you know, it's rugged individualism that built this country and it's the savvy of the people. No, that's a freaking lie. You know, you stole, you stole, you enslaved, and then you built based on, you accumulated wealth based on that. That's not, that's not what capitalism is supposed to be as you propagandize it, yet that's what we've been told. That's the Kool-Aid we drink. And so then we come down to situations like yours. And to me, it's just a continuation of the same old playbook, Josh. A continuation of the oh, yeah. same thing. Uh, there's no doubt about it. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's like Hamilton said, you know, hey, man, hey, neighbor. Uh, your bills are paid because you don't pay for labor. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> <Right>. it's... Uh, <laughs> Watched that one a few times. Yeah, uh, great show, uh, but uh, you know, yeah. uh, it's a fantastic show. It's yeah. uh, really great for the two-year-olds. Yeah, um, so <laughs> she's a big fan. Um, uh, it uh, no, listen, it's you know, this is where we are here mm. in this uh, in this, and and I'm that's what drives me so crazy with people, and it's one of the things that really does make me angry with with people is um, is that they've been so conditioned to to hurt themselves mm-hmm. uh in this system that we have uh you know who they vote for the the policies that they vote for the things they think about i mean you know to the other, the other day i saw a guy that, that used to be a firefighter in montgomery and uh he posted this long thing that was this uh it, it copied and pasted from somebody it was a little, one of those viral deals that goes around every now and then and it was supposedly from a young person who was uh sitting in a coffee shop uh talking about this entitlement attitude of today's young people uh and and how you know we we love to talk about how well the rich aren't paying their fair share and how we're missing out and he just looked around at all these young people with their cell phones and uh and how they could order with a click of a button something from Amazon and and how we just don't have any concept of what being poor is and being left out and how America is the greatest country. And I'm like, man, this is great. If you're a white middle-class person that has never in your life experienced uh, food insecurity right. or poverty of any sorts or whatever. But let me tell you, man, uh, you know, when I was in Montgomery and, and, and went around a lot, uh, you know, to, into the, some of the poorest communities there. And, you know, what, matter of fact, one of the people I, I was helping uh, at a time there, you know, we would take, uh, food and stuff to the different community centers. And we would, uh, there was another lady that was doing tutoring there who, who I got to know. And, uh, there was this kid who was a brilliant mathematician. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, uh, at that point supposed to be a third grader. Uh, he was doing math at the 11th grade level. Wow. Um, wow. and, and I mean, was just off the charts, mm. you know? Um, but, his mom was an addict. Mm. Uh, his dad was nowhere to be found. Mm. Uh, they lived in a house that did not have electricity. Jesus. Uh, they they did not have running water for most of the time. And this was in the uh, city. They would 
And this was in the city. Oh yeah, this is yeah. in the city. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, wow. Uh yeah. and they would bounce around from different place to place, uh, you know, once every two or three months. Mm. Uh, you know, he had very no clothes or anything else. And you never knew when he was gonna go to school or where he was gonna go to school or anything else. Mm. And so that's what you know, uh, you know I had, there was another girl that uh, they interviewed that she was in college on a basketball scholarship. And for most of her high school life, she was homeless. Uh, she slept on the streets a lot. She slept in uh, a hotel that had been uh, abandoned and she lived there uh, for a period of time. And finally, a preacher and uh, his family, uh, who had very, very little money, uh, took her in and she lived with them as their daughter. Uh, and, um, yeah, and that was what, uh, basically saved her and allowed her to go to college. Uh, what was that was them taking her in. And, and so this idea that things are set up and it's even, and, and that if you ask for something and that they're, they're not, you know, nobody's out there is really, really poor. There's just all of sad sob story. It's, it's nonsense. It's being sold to you because they're banking on you not knowing any better because you don't bother to know any better. Uh, and you know, it's, there are people who need things out there and there are a lot of people who don't need half the crap they have, yeah, that's very uh, true. half 90% of what they have. Uh, mm-hmm. they don't need it and they could survive and be great for generations off of 10% of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they just keep hoarding more and more and more of it. Uh, and so, you know, it's a, uh, it's a system that has always, uh, befuddled me because the people at the bottom have been so conditioned to, to never ask and feel shame if they do ask for even a, a, a small percentage of what the people at the top are still asking for yep. and still demanding today. That's right. Uh, it just really, really, that's one of the things that really, that really does piss me well, off. Well, and rightly so, rightly so. It's, 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 a, it's another, uh, it's a variation of the whole concept of manifest destiny uh, this uh, this crooked, corrupted uh, form of capitalism that we practice, and and by the way, now I think you and I have officially entered socialist communist territory. So, uh, welcome, comrade. Good to yeah. see you. Yeah. Well, it's you know uh, the socialism. Uh, it's you know I, I saw <laughs> that's what I saw we'll be it, called. We'll be tweet. called socialist and yeah. communist. You know. I saw I saw a great tweet from uh, from a girl uh, this week that said uh, I was it's so weird to be raised your entire life in a in a Christian in a Southern Christian household uh, where you yeah, were, were taught that. throughout your life to treat <laughs> others uh, w- with respect and get, and do unto others as you'd have them do unto you and to give to the poor and then to learn as an then to be told as an adult stop you're not really supposed to do any of that you socialist <laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> I saw that that's great. I love that meme. Yeah. Uh, uh, but you know, speaking of uh, our fine, uh, our fine capitalist society that we have here, uh, we are about to build uh, two billion dollars worth of new prisons uh, in this state, which is doing really great financially. Don't know if you know that or not. Yeah. So, uh, and so, yeah, and so you know, we don't have money for this. We don't have money for that. But we are going to find two billion dollars uh, to build three or four three and a half super prisons, uh, out there. Um, and it is, man, this is one of the most Alabama projects I think I have ever come across in my entire life. We're going to, uh, we can't get the legislature to agree on anything. So we can't actually come up with the, with real plans to build prisons by the state, uh, to contract them out, you know, to go through the bidding process, to go through all of these things. Mm-hmm. So instead, what we're going to do is we're going to come up with, uh, three companies to build these things for us 
then we're going to lease them. Uh, we're going to have 31 year leases because we can't go more than that because right. going more than one year lease would be illegal. Right. So we're going to have 31 year leases, at which time at the end of that period, we're still not going to own the prison. So we're going to pay two billion, nearly $2 billion estimated uh, here for these things. Uh, we're not going to own the land or the prisons at the end of this thing. And of course, the other side of that, that, that many of us find so reprehensible is in order to justify the existence of those prisons, they're going to have to find reasons to uh, lock people up. And, um, and we believe, especially when it comes to the private prison industry, which I know uh, President Biden has said he's going to get the nation out of that business. I hope he can be successful with that. I guess he can, at least on the federal level anyway. Uh, but uh, but you know they're going to be they're going to be uh, locking up people to justify that. And according to the research I've done through the years, the most the most profitable way to sustain uh, the populations that they need to have is to make sure that they are locking up people who are younger. You know, it's mm -hmm. got to be the focus has got to be on having a younger population. And in a state like Alabama, and probably most states, that means a blacker and browner prison population. Yeah, I, you know, I I don't think that uh, that that's ever been a problem for Alabama. Mm. Uh, not having enough prisoners uh, has never been a problem, um, uh, and so I I don't foresee it being being an issue well, for them uh, going forward. Well, when you say it hasn't been a problem, you're saying the the state's propensity to lock people up. But I'm but what I'm mm -hmm. questioning is. The premise, I'm questioning the very idea, you know, for example, that we've been locking people up for things that they shouldn't have been locked up for, you know. Oh, certainly. Yeah, you know, yeah. That's yeah, really yeah, what I'm yeah, getting yeah. to. Yeah. Oh, well, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. And we're going to, you know, and that's what I'm saying. That they don't they don't need to change anything. Mm -hmm. uh, they've, they've been quite successful mm -hmm. at locking up uh, people for for very poor reasons uh, for a long period of time. Um, and, and that's going to that's going to maintain itself, I would imagine. And, uh, you know, what what gets me is if you look at uh, the DOJ reports, you look at the federal lawsuits that have come about for out of, for out of Alabama prison situation because it's terrible. Uh, it's awful all the way through through and through. Uh, you have a number of things that are always the same there, which is uh, we got a shortage of guards. Uh, you have a shortage of health care providers and mental health care providers. Um, and you have too many prisoners in one area uh, at, at a time. Um, out of all those things, the new prisons are going to address one of those, and that is having too many prisoners in the same area at one time, allegedly, uh, because, believe it or not, uh, we're actually, with these prisons, going to reduce our capacity uh, for because there, we can actually hold more in the prisons that we currently have than we're going to be able to hold once we have the three super prisons. Uh, so uh, I know that doesn't make sense, but now mm -hmm. they say the way they are positioned and the way they're housed uh, will will alleviate a lot of the overcrowding issues that they have there. So I'm going to take them at their word, although I have no reason whatsoever to do so. Not based uh, on the past Because they have lied repeatedly yeah. about everything. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, that matter of fact, you you'd be hard pressed to find uh, anybody who deserves prison less than the people who run the prisons in Alabama, um, and so uh, you know. I, but they don't address the two main problems that we have, which is guards and health care, including mental health in there. 
they don't address that. So we're going to spend $2 billion. And you know, once we pay that bill, there is no more going into prisons. Where are we going to, what are we going to do about the rest? Not to mention, we have had a steady decline over the course of the last 15 years in rehabilitative services uh, in those prisons, which means we've cut basically the classes that allow people to come out of prison and go back into society and perform right. a job and a function uh, and integrate themselves into society the way that we're supposed to be doing this. Uh, we've cut those as well. Yeah. So... What are we doing? Well, so so then and so then that creates a situation where we're bringing people out of a situation where they're not being rehabilitated back into society to be maladjusted in many cases, mm-hmm. probably most cases, reoffend, reoffend, uh, or at the or at the very least struggle and they're a burden on their families and societies and and uh, suffering themselves in ways they shouldn't be. And I suspect, again, the cynical part of me says that's what they really want. They want these people to reoffend. They really want there to be a high recidivism rate so that they can continue uh-huh. to justify having uh, the, the prison industry to the extent that it does. Well, yeah, do. and I'll tell you, I think, I think that that's probably true. And I also think that there's a, also a lot of, the, uh, of people that just really don't care. Uh, you know, which is, which is really, really unfortunate because we're, we're talking about other human beings here. And I mean, our, uh, our prison system, there was a, um, uh, an autopsy report released yesterday, uh, Wednesday, uh, that, um, that showed a prisoner, uh, in, in ADOC was, uh, was essentially cooked to death in his cell. Um, I, I mean, it was, uh, the heat was pumped in, this was in December. It was cold mm. outside. Uh, you know, heat was pumped into the cell at such a degree that he ended up dying of, of hypothermia. Uh, body temperature was 109 degrees. And, mm. uh, I mean, it just, you know, it was ruled an accident. You know, <sighs> apparently they found him in the cell with his head pressed against the window, trying to get cool air. Uh, so you tell him. Just, so you, you te- know, so you telling me nobody that that person did not cry out for help at any. That couldn't have happened in just one night. That had to have been no, something no. that was protracted over a few days. You telling me that person didn't complain, didn't ask for help, and that and that and they just ignored. What I'm getting out of that is they ignored this person's circumstance and they let him die. Yeah. That's what I'm getting out of that's, it. That's, no, listen, that, and that, that is not an uncommon thing, unfortunately, in Alabama prisons. Um, uh, the, matter of fact, uh, allowing someone to die uh, is probably one of the lesser offenses that we've had from, from the prison and prison guards and officials over the last several years uh, where they have acted, uh, you know, they've been accused of actually killing people yeah. uh, there. So, yeah. uh, you know, this is, uh, until we change that, um you know, and and really, you know, you can tell me all you want to about uh, what a great Christian state this is, hmm. and, and how much you care, uh, and and until you fix that right there, and and you get some humanity back into those places, because there's no reason why it shouldn't be, yeah. uh, you know, and and I'll tell you this, there, there's one adage that is always true: uh, the attitude and the environment in your prison is a direct result of the jailers. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, who that they said it, they determine it. Whatever it is, that's what they've decided, and that's what they've determined. And not the prisoners, not the other way around. The prisoners don't determine it. It's the jailers who do that. And as the uh, as the resident uh, chaplain of the uh, Alabama Politics This Week podcast, the albeit a very liberal 
you know, extremely liberal, almost pinko commie chaplain, I would just uh-huh. go ahead sure. on record and remind people that in case, in case they want to take issue with your comments connecting uh, the state's uh, self self, you know, the state uh, or many, most of the residents of the state self-identifying as Christian uh, while also tolerating and maybe even encouraging arguably the state of the prisons, I would remind them, I would take them to the book of Matthew where Jesus talked about specifically uh, the fact that, uh, that one of his measures of people at the end of days was going to be whether or not they had cared for the prisoners whether or not they had cared for prisoners. And, uh, and, and also let us remember that Jesus himself was in state custody at one point, as was Peter, as was John the Baptist, uh, as was John the Revelator, as was Paul, as were many of the apostles. Uh, you know, uh, so uh, there is a biblical there is a biblical mandate, as far as I'm concerned, again, as the pink old commie, super liberal chaplain of this podcast, there is a biblical mandate that says we should be caring for the prisoners along with others who we categorize in New Testament terminology as the least of these. Uh, let the church say amen. God bless you. Have a nice amen, day. Amen, amen. Yeah. Hey, uh, that was a... Uh... It was a it was a fine sermon well, on the back side of that. Um yeah. and, and listen, hey, you get everything here. Yeah, uh, you you've gotten in, in one segment, you've gotten financial advice, <laughs> uh a little bit of church and some prison talk. I don't know what else you need, okay? I don't know how, you people ought to be paying for this. This is a okay? one stop this is a one stop podcast, baby. One stop. <laughs> That's right. Uh, hey, let's slide out of here. We're gonna have uh UAB's Dr. Michael Sag in here with but when we return and uh, to talk about uh, the, the vaccine and uh, and the status of COVID within the state of Alabama and uh, and see where things are right now uh, this week, so we'll be back in just a moment on Alabama politics this week. Hey everybody, just wanted to remind you if you would take a moment and go to your favorite podcast destination and leave us a nice review if you would uh also don't forget to rate us if you get a chance Uh, that would really really help us out a whole lot here and uh, you know maybe we could earn some money off this thing every now and then thanks a lot guys Alrighty, welcome back in Alabama Politics This Week. We are happy now, David and myself, to have world-renowned Dr. Michael Sack. Uh, he's a professor of medicine and infectious diseases, the director of the UAB AIDS Center, and associate dean for global health at UAB. Oh, I guess the to get into this here, the easiest way to get into it uh, and to not limit you in any way is to just ask you, where we are right now in terms of of COVID uh, in the state, um, and and I guess with with a vaccine as well, and what what y'all are seeing at UAB in terms of hospitalizations and some other stuff, and just kind of an overview, uh, if you would. Sure, it's a lot like uh, Dickens' novel. It's the best of times. It's the worst of times. <clears throat> so I'll start with the worst of times. We had more deaths um, in January than we've had in the entire time of the epidemic. Uh, we had the uh, triple 
boost in cases starting at Thanksgiving to Christmas to New Year's. Um, and <clears throat> we've lost our voice in terms of being able to communicate to the public about the importance of simple things like mask wearing and distance and avoiding crowds. As this has all failed, uh, I don't have another word for it, um, we've been uh, experiencing mutated viruses that are expected when you have a rapidly replicating virus, uh, it's going to mutate. That's just what they do. Um, this virus actually is less likely to mutate than, say, HIV, because it's a larger virus. It's 30,000 30, base pairs compared to about 10,000 for HIV. But it, with, with coronavirus, it has a self-checking. Um, it has like a spell check whenever it re reproduces. So it doesn't make as many mistakes as some others, but it does make mistakes. And those mistakes, when they get a growth advantage, will take over because they have, just based on Darwin, they are more fit and they survive better. So we're encountering some of these more um, easily transmitted viruses, which challenges us, especially when people are not really taking the proper precautions. So that's been very frustrating. On the better side, the good side, we have a vaccine. And for those who say, I don't know if I'm going to take it, I'm a little hesitant, just ask the question, what happens, what would happen if we didn't have a vaccine? This epidemic would continue rolling. We just experienced our worst month. It, there's no reason it would go away. No reason I can see. So just as far as you can look out into the future, I don't see this epidemic burning out or going away, uh, at least until millions of people are infected and millions of people have died. So this vaccine is a godsend. It's a Christmas miracle, whatever you want to call it. It's amazing that about a year ago today, this, these vaccines were created. It's on a platform called mRNA, which has never been used in humans before because uh, it's a new technology. And it's worked beyond anybody's imagination, both in terms of efficacy and safety. The studies were done incredibly rigorously. And to the credit of our government, when these things were moving forward, they had the wherewithal and the advanced knowledge to, to engage with pharma, pharmaceutical companies, the ones making it, to build the plants so that production could be there if and when the time came that the studies showed safety and efficacy. And that's exactly what happened. So we are in a remarkable period of time scientifically, and we're benefiting from that, and we should take full advantage of that science. Finally, uh, the struggle that we're having right now in terms of rolling out of the vaccine is just some chaos, um, not knowing where the vaccine supplies are coming from, uh, as well as the government did uh, in the last administration in terms of thinking in advance and paying the pharma companies to make the product ahead of time, there wasn't a whole lot of thought and distribution, and they just left it up to the states. And while we can argue politically about the value of letting local uh, decision makers make local decisions for certain things, when it comes to roll out of a vaccine program, that's not a great idea, because you get a lot of uh, patchwork quilt um, inequalities, and 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 we, this would have been better served with a federal plan, which is now coming into play. So um, 
that's the big picture overview. All right. Well, before uh, I know Dave's got got several questions, but before uh, he he goes, I I wanted to the the vaccine itself. Uh, I know you have a lot of uh, experience in in uh, in that particular. Uh, area and in the production of things and in the process that leads to it. And um, how do you feel about uh, the safety? And, you know, because I think a lot of people are, they've heard that, well, you know, this was a little rushed. Uh, you know, this was, you know, we, we skipped some steps to get to this. I don't know if I should take it. I've heard the stories out there. What would, if somebody tells you, listen, I'm a little hesitant about taking this thing, what can you say to reassure me? Number one, steps were not skipped. That's false. The steps were done. They were done in parallel as opposed to sequentially. So normally what happens in drug development and in vaccine development is you do your studies, you wait for the outcome. Then if you have a hit, then you scale up production and you move forward. What was different is that as these things were being uh, evaluated in clinical trials, the production was done in parallel. It was a $1.5 billion gamble. So if, if these vaccines hadn't worked, we would have been paying for vaccine and production plants that we'd never use. It turned out that was a great investment and a wonderful gamble because it worked out. That's the first point. The second point is these studies were state-of-the-art best we've ever done. So to say there were steps skipped is just fallacy. It's just wrong. These studies were rigorously performed. They didn't have a thousand or two thousand patients, they had thirty to forty thousand people per study, randomized, impeccably done, with tracking every outcome in terms of safety and also in terms of efficacy. And they and the the product just happened to perform extremely well. So I don't buy anybody who would say these things were not well done or that steps were skipped. That is absolutely false. And since we've we've been going through this process of of vaccinating a few people, have there been uh, have there been any real problems? There, the problems have been mostly logistic. I will say that I'm seeing we're hearing about some um, local reactions. Uh, one that I just worked through today, where um, some women who get the vaccine will have a circular uh, rash on their arm or a lesion that lasts for about two weeks. Uh, that wasn't seen to my knowledge in the clinical trial. It, it's benign, meaning they'll get through it and there won't be any long-term sequela. But that's that's maybe to be expected when you start rolling out. Instead of to 100,000 people, you're going out to millions of people. You're going to see some things. But on the other hand, um, everything else we're seeing is pretty much expected. The other area that wasn't fully evaluated because they were excluded are people like me who had had the infection before symptomatically, those individuals were excluded from the clinical trial, mostly because they already had some degree of immunity and they wanted to see what the protection was of those who had never had the uh, the infection before. So I would have been excluded from the studies. So when I went in to get my vaccination a couple of weeks ago, um, even though my infection was in March, I did have a more of a systemic reaction, meaning fever and chills, headache, lasted about 18 hours. But that tells me that my immune system was ready, primed, fighting this thing when it got exposed again. And that's what you want from a vaccine. Hmm. Okay. So um, 
Doctor, let me first uh, let me first thank you for joining us today. Um, I want to start actually with uh, a conversation about uh, what President Biden is trying to accomplish. So President Biden is saying that he wants to see over the course of uh, I think I, if I if I've got this right, and I may I may not, but if I've got this right. He wants to see about 100,000 people vaccinated uh, in the first, uh, was it 100 days of his term or, uh, what million. did I say? 100,000? I'm sorry. I meant 100 million. 100,000. Yeah, Thank I, you, Josh. 100 million. I meant 100 million. He wants to see 100 million people vaccinated. Uh, do you believe uh, in, the, in, the, in the first 100 days of his uh, term? Do you believe that that is something that we currently have the ability to execute based on the, the supply of the vaccine and based on the current uh, processes that are in place to distribute it to people? I don't know. Uh, if it were up to me, I'd like to see uh, 200 million people vaccinated in the first 100 days uh, because that would get us out of this epidemic sooner. I think you've hit on where the rate limiting step is. It's supply. So. As of this moment in time, the U.S. government is committed to the purchase of now up to 600 million doses, 600 million doses. That means 300 million people in the United States would get vaccinated. That would definitely get us out of this epidemic, which is what we're all striving to do. It's going to take probably into the late summer, early fall for all those doses to be produced and delivered to states for administration. So that means the rollout's going to be moving along. Here's the thing to look for this even in the next week or so. There's a third company, Johnson & Johnson, that also has a vaccine that's ending its um, uh, time of enrollment, and they're going to put a lock on the data to be evaluated this coming weekend. If that vaccine hits, that's wonderful news because that'll be a third vaccine the U.S. government's already committed to purchase 100 million of doses of that, assuming it works. And that's only one shot. So it's not a double shot where you get one and then three to four weeks later, you get your second. You get it, you're good to go. It's a one and done. So that is uh, going to be a potential game changer for us, especially in communities that are more difficult to reach. That's both in the United States, but also around the world places where it might be hard to get to a vaccination center, that's going to be a game changer where you don't have to think so much about the second vaccination. So if J&J &J hits, and then we have Pfizer and Moderna, I think we will hit uh, 100, million 100 million doses, that's 50 million people, um, 100 million shots within the 100 days. I think that's doable, but we'll have to wait and see. The goal, even if it's aspirational, still moves us forward. I'd just like to see us achieve it. Okay, so it's 100 million shots, not 100 million people, you're saying? That's what I understand, okay. 100 million vaccinations okay. a day. One, okay. Sorry, 1 million vaccinations a day over 100 days. 100 days, got you, okay. So uh, there have also been concerns expressed about the, uh, the, some of the processes around the uh, distribution and storage of the vaccines. We've seen news reports where uh, apparently huge amounts of vaccines have had to be disposed of because they weren't stored properly. 
Uh, I know there's a there's a, an element I think of uh, code uh, that has to be accounted for when you're looking at vaccine storage. Uh, do you have any concerns about the uh, ability of of hospitals and other uh, institutions? Do do they have the capacity to to handle the vaccines appropriately to preserve them? Uh, uh, do you have any concerns about that as we as we look at this? Well, you're right in the sense that that for both Moderna and Pfizer, cold chain is a term. Cold chain assurance is like chain of evidence if you're in law, right? You have to assure that it's cold at the right temperature every step until it's thawed for delivery to an individual. So that requires a lot of thought, a lot of planning, especially for Pfizer, where it has to be minus 80 degrees, minus 70 degrees centigrade, very cold. Um, the Moderna doesn't require quite as stringent of requirements, but they've worked out at least how to get it from the factory into shipping containers and then delivered to a site. Once it gets to the site, I would imagine that they've thought it through. I know at UAB, where I am, it's, in, it's impeccable. Uh, I'm not worried at all about our site or other hospitals that I'm aware of. I just can't vouch for some of the um, neighborhood clinics where it might be going. That has to be uh, uh, assured. And then they'll also be going to pharmacies uh, around the state. Uh, and I, I have more, I have trust in that because pharmacies, if you've ever met a pharmacist, are like an accountant. They really pay attention to every single dose, right? So they're going to be rigorous and, and obsessive about it. And that's what we want. I hadn't heard the stories about massive numbers of doses being thrown out. I mean, you, you might have channels of information that are better than mine. But um, so far, I think there have been some uh, some stumbles uh, at different places. But my understanding is that those are on a small scale. Uh, overall, I'm seeing an improvement in our ability to deliver vaccines. I think we were at something like 21% of all doses delivered going into people's arms about 10 days ago. Now we're at 49%, so we're making progress. Um, but it's a challenge. And, I, and if, I guess in retrospect, I would have loved to have seen the approach that the president, current president's taking implemented back in November, early December, but I'll take it as we can get it right, right now. And we know, and, and Josh, I only have two more questions. Uh, I, I mean, we obviously know that uh, we've been operating in a nation without a, without a plan, basically. And, and that's been, regardless of how one feels about the vaccine or anything else, that clearly has been to our detriment. Uh, I have two more questions. One is about uh, uh, something you alluded to earlier when you talked about uh, the global nature of this of this uh, pan uh, of this uh, virus, you know, it's a global pandemic. So even if we are able to achieve um, 100 uh, million doses dispensed in the next 100 days, and then let's even go further, be more optimistic, and say that by June or July, you know, we're right about that sweet spot uh, where I guess uh, the the uh, the fable, well, I'm not going to say fable, but where the, the herd immunity that we're living in anticipation of is going to kick in. Will that really matter in the grand scheme of things if the rest of the world has not caught up in terms of the distribution of the vaccine and the immunization process? 
Uh, well, we didn't get into this mess overnight, and we're not going to get out of it overnight. There's an adage of infectious diseases that states an, a virus or an infection isn't gone anywhere until it's gone everywhere. So we have an obligation for our own country to get it under control, but we also have a global obligation, in my view, to work with other countries, to work with organizations like the WHO and other sort of entities that do this for a living to ultimately get this thing eradicated worldwide. I don't think we're gonna get there in the next year. It might be another year and a half for the global approach. But in the United States, the 100 days is followed by another 100 days, right? And I think with the, with the better supply of, of uh, vaccine, what we're gonna see is that by, let's say May, I think anyone who wants a vaccine will have access to it and will be able to get it through June and into July. What we're gonna see is an interesting transition between clamoring for the drug right now, which is kind of a demand problem, or sorry, we have a supply problem. We don't have a demand problem. We have supply problems that come into the summer. We're going to have a demand issue. So most people who really wanted the vaccination will get it. That'll probably include children. By that point, we'll have data. But then we're going to have a pocket of individuals, I'm, pick a number, 20%, 25% of the country who are hesitant, if not flat out resistant to getting this in fact, to getting this uh, vaccination. And we're gonna have to transition to campaigns to try to get information to where people live and give them facts and be upfront about it uh, and, and encourage them to get vaccinated because with these more transmissible strains to get to your point about herd immunity, how many people have to be protected varies by the infectivity potential of the, vac of the virus. So with a more virulent, more infectious virus, we have to get to perhaps 80% herd immunity, whereas the virus that we started with, we might've gotten by with 65 or 70% to get herd immunity. Final point, herd immunity is not a light switch. We aren't sort of getting there, getting there, getting there, and boom, we're there. It's a gradual thing. And so any type of vaccination is gonna be beneficial. But where we want to get to is where there's a bending point, a tipping point, where the actual infection starts to disappear. That's what we're looking for. But along the way, we're going to have benefit, and that's good news. So my final question is this, and it's even more, I think, relevant in light of what you've just said. Um, we are seeing now multiple strains, uh, you know, mutations of this virus. They seem to be there seem to be, uh, if, I, if I, my count is right, three or four out there, uh, one from South Africa, one from Brazil, one from England, I believe, and I don't know if there are any others. Um, how will that impact the ability of our current plan to try to vaccinate uh, people in this country? How will it impact that with these multiple strains? It impacts it in two major ways. The first is that as these viruses are more infectious and contagious, it puts urgency on our wanting to get the vaccine out to as many people as soon as we can. And a corollary of that is we really have to stress the critical importance of mask wearing, distancing, avoiding crowds, washing hands, because those viruses are much more readily transmitted. If you were kind of safe in, in the summer, 
those those procedures may not keep you safe while you're waiting for your vaccine now. So now is the time to really hunker down and do those things impeccably well. The second answer to your question has to do with strains that are not just more infectious, but to dig into the weeds a little bit, the way that these vaccines work is that they target a part of the virus called the spike protein. If you think about coronavirus, it's a sun, right? Corona means sun. And you have this like ray that would be coming out that's really the spike protein. That spike protein is critical for two ways. One, it's where the it's where the virus binds to a receptor in the in the patient who they're infecting the virus. And, and, and the affinity, the ability of that spike to interact with that receptor is improved with some of the mutations, thereby making it more infectious. That's one. So those mutations do lead to more infectivity. The second thing is that the vaccines that we've developed are against the spike protein in key regions that the immunity is directed against that part of the spike protein. If that protein changes through a mutation, then the affinity of the, of the immune response to that area can be diminished and the vaccine might not work as well. That's the biggest concern. So we're a race against time. Right now, I can tell you that Moderna, I know, has already developed a new vaccine that can be used as a booster, and they're testing it right now in animals, as I understand it, that will work against the Brazilian strain and the South African strain if they find that it is no longer quite as effective. And again, it won't necessarily be a light switch where it works or doesn't work. It just may be having reduced effectiveness. So we're working as we go because it is a moving target. But all of this underscores the big take-home point is the urgency to get as many people vaccinated as soon as we can so we stay ahead of the virus and don't fall behind. Merck has decided that it's out of the vaccine business for now and is going to shift over uh, into the treatment business. Um, what do you think is more important? Getting, getting uh, uh, well, this is a two-part question. Do you think the treatment is ultimately going to matter more than vaccination or less? And then question B, or part two of the question is, uh, does it concern you? Is there, is there any reason we should be concerned about the fact that Merck is making this shift? Uh, treatment is important. We do have some treatments, monoclonal antibody now, that um, if given early to high-risk people, reduces the length of illness, reduces severity of illness, and, and all but eliminates hospitalization for those who otherwise would have gone in. But that's pretty much all we have for the outpatient. I know for a fact what Merck is working on, they're working on two new drugs that would be oral. So think like Tamiflu for influenza. So somebody gets diagnosed, great, not great, they got it, but great, we can do something about it. We'll give you a pill, you start taking right away and you abort the infection. So that's what they're working on and we need that. The reason they stopped the uh, vaccine development program was because compared to Moderna, compared to Pfizer, it didn't work as well. So good for them for paying attention and saying, eh, it's futile. We, we, we tried, it just didn't work out. So that underscores two things. One, as I said earlier, those vaccines are working incredibly well. So they set the bar very high for what has to be at least equal, right? So we'll see if J&J is up to it this weekend. And the second thing is, is that they're, it's, it's not, it should make us feel good. Those who are saying it's rushed, 
it's hurried. They're just fighting to get it out there. They're paying attention to the data. They're letting the science drive the decision-making. We should be happy about that because instead of Merck saying, we're, we're great beating our chest when they're really an inferior product is a disservice. And they recognize that and appropriately responsibly, they pulled the plug on the program. Good for them. I, you, you mentioned, uh, and, and what, just a couple of questions for myself here, and these are really uh, just uh, common sort of, you know, what, what happens if sort of things here. Uh, but oh, you mentioned uh, the efficacy uh, there. What has they, have they maintained the, the efficacy in the, in, in the data that we, we have since then? Yeah. So the people who were in the study, these together 70,000 plus people in the Merck, sorry, in the Pfizer and Moderna studies, they don't just say, okay, good for you. You're done. Thanks for your service. They follow them. So they're following all those people right now for the longevity, exactly to your point. So they're all, they're going to always be about three or four months ahead of the rest of us because they got it in the summer and the early fall. So we're going to see what it go, how it goes. Secondly, they, we do know the levels of antibody, for example, produced by the vaccine. Believe it or not, those antibody levels are much higher from the vaccine than even the native infection. So if I, when I had COVID, my antibody levels might've been a certain level, but I get the vaccine that's gonna be even higher. And then they look at the decay curve, how fast or so that those antibodies start to uh, disappear. It looks like when you put it in a, in a chart, it's gonna be lasting at least a year. So when we, if we're gonna need a booster, it'll probably be a year from now, unless we find that there's a strain in our community that is not going to be uh, uh, neutralized by the immunity created by the original vaccines. We might have to get a booster with a different epitope, a different uh, part of the protein. And let, let me add one, one just uh, pretty simple thing here that I've, I've just never heard anybody say. Um, after you get the, the second shot, uh, your second you know, vaccine, what are you What are you supposed to do? Are, do you, can you take the mask off at that point? Can you Can you stop worrying about the six feet? Can you go hang out in the crowd? Um, the, here's the, Here's what I would say, and I think what everyone's recommending: keep doing all the things you know to do to protect everyone around you. Several reasons why. Number one, the vaccine is ninety five percent effective. It's not a hundred percent effective. So if you got exposed, you could get reinfected, or you could become infected. The severity of illness is less for sure in people who've had the vaccine versus those who didn't, but you could still get sick. Secondly, we don't, we know that someone could become infected and remain asymptomatic if they've had the vaccine. So that means they don't get sick, but they could be shedding the virus in the community around them. So if you're not wearing a mask, you're harming your neighbors. So keep wearing the mask. Thirdly, solidarity. You know, we're all in this together. Let's do this together as a unified country, for goodness sakes. We're in this together. Let's get through it together. By the summertime, when most people have gotten their vaccine, then we can collectively take a step back, start returning to normal. My hope, Thanksgiving and Christmas next this coming year will be normal. But we got to do it together. Stop fighting with one another, for goodness sakes. Let's work together. We really need that. It's, we are fighting a war, and those people who criticize that commentary are flat out wrong. We've been invaded by a virus. We're in war against a virus. And if we fought World War II the way we're fighting this virus, we, the Nazis would have taken over the world. 
back in 1944. We would have lost that war. We are not fighting together. We're not doing this as one unit. We need to do that over the coming six months and we'll defeat the virus, but we got to do it together. Yeah, I mean, maybe we should try again telling people that you could save football season. I don't know. Uh, I mean, it just, uh, you know, it's, uh, if maybe if that's what it takes, I don't know what we could do here. But uh, listen, Dr. Say, this has been uh, been great, really. Uh, I mean, it's uh, we really appreciate you taking the time, a few extra minutes and, and answering all of well, my idiotic questions. And, you know, I don't know how David feels about his, but uh, <laughs> so, but. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, I really, really, really do appreciate it. Thank well, you, sir. Well, well, thank you for the opportunity. The questions actually were great because they got to the heart of the matter. And I'm I'm very grateful for the opportunity to get information out there that is um, as honest and, and unvarnished as I can possibly give it, because I think that's what we need to hear is truth and uh, and get the truth out there so that people can make wise decisions. We agree 100% on that. We really do appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thanks for joining us, doctor. Hey, just wanted to take a second to uh, thank the AFL-CIO for their support of the podcast here at Alabama Politics this week and really thank them for all that they do for us and for the workers all around uh, Alabama. Uh, The Alabama AFL-CIO, which you can find at alaflcio.com. Again, that's alaflcio.com. Uh, go to their, their website. Uh, they, they do great work uh, at helping you organize, uh, teaching you about the benefits of a union, uh, teaching you about how to, how to go about filing grievances and everything else that goes with, with being a union member. And especially in this time, COVID-19 is so prevalent and, um, you know, a lot of workers are having problems with uh, precautions not necessarily being taken or getting relief uh, that they need because of wage losses and job losses. Go over there to the website, take a look at the reports that are there, take a look at the guidance that they have, uh, utilize some of those, uh, some of the fine people that are working at Alabama AFL-CIO uh, and, and take advantage of, of what a union can bring. Uh, and that's especially true if you're working in a place that does not necessarily have a union. Uh, I think you can read, uh, read all about that with the, uh, with the folks working at Amazon currently uh, in this state. And you can see the benefits that kind of come along with being a union member. Uh, again, that's A-L-A-F-L-C-I-O.com. A-L-A-F-L-C-I-O.com. All righty. Welcome back. Alabama politics this week here. Ready to wrap this baby up. Uh, we got a few minutes left, though. We can... Um, I wanted to uh I wanted to talk about um this uh uh this deal with with Tuberville uh Tommy Tuberville uh and uh his uh, I I I we started reporting on this Eddie Burkhalter who works for the Alabama Political Reporter uh started started uh, reporting on Tommy Tuberville's involvement in this January the 5th uh meeting uh, at the Trump Hotel in D.C., uh, which I guess started at the White House. Uh, and then there were these 15 people, uh, a couple of senators, uh, Trump's uh, attorneys, uh, some others who were there um, that, you know, they're, they're thinking was the planning meeting for the I, the ins- insurrection that occurred on January the 6th. Um, and, you know, I would say I'll say this when when I first heard about all this this stuff and, and Tuberville's involvement. Uh, first of all, I don't 
really believe that Tuberville was involved in anything because he's just insane and nobody would have ever let him plan anything. But um, that was he there? Yes. Did he have any idea what was going on? Probably not, uh, which is not uncommon for, for Tuberville. Uh, but the, uh, I you know, I just thought, well, I mean, you know, it's it's a thing to say that, that they were there planning this, you know, but they they weren't really planning something, you know, something. But then everybody started running from this. And when they started running from it, that's when I went, oh, hell, they were planning some stuff over there at this, <laughs> at this meeting. You know, I mean, when you start denying it and then people are like, well, here's your photo. Oh, <laughs> it was just like, you know, why are you running from it, man? You know what I mean? It's a... It just, it seems like now, they, I, I think they've caught them pretty well red-handed that they were at this place planning this thing. All right. So what, what are the, the <laughs> so what do we, what do we do with that, though, is the question that I have. I mean, what is that, what does that lead us to? Tumberville was just elected. Uh, there's no way to really, I mean, I would assume, I guess this is my, my position, I would assume that uh, that uh, there are a lot of people that had an awareness of this event and and that they were in some way, even if only tangentially, they were involved. But the you know the the question to me really is where do we draw the line in terms of a bunch of you know angry disgruntled people getting together to try to 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 plan a rally and then actually moving this rally into the arena of insurrection. Mm-hmm. And and the way yeah. I see it, and yeah. the way I see it, unless unless Tuberville was uh was directly involved in some way with that, I just, you know, or and, and for that matter anybody else. So I'm looking yeah. at Who's directly involved? Well, we know Mo Brooks got up there and said inflammatory things. We know Donald Trump got up there and said inflammatory things. You know, so, I mean, to me, that's where my focus is ultimately on that. Yeah, and I, I think that that's, that's really fair. Uh, you know, I, uh, I, <laughs> it's one, one of the ways that uh, Tuberville's stupidity has probably saved him here is that nobody actually takes seriously that he would have been in there planning anything. Uh, but, uh, I, I mean, it's, it, it's uh, I, I think that that's, that's fair, fair, unless there was some form of um, uh, funding that that went well. Went now that's a this. good point. You know what that's I mean. That's a good point. Uh, and so, point. yeah, and, and because if you'll remember from uh, from my 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 column uh, that I ran uh, this week about Chip Brown and his mm-hmm. bill uh, that uh, he's introducing this legislative session, uh, he he defines inciting a riot uh, with funding mm-hmm. in there or in any way aiding and abetting uh, the people that that are part of that riot. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, listen, if that's your standard, right. you know, then, then maybe those people in that room, uh, did in fact help incite the riot. So, uh, you know, I, I don't, but I don't know. I think it's, it's a, it, you're right. It's a stretch, uh, to get to, to Tuberville and his, you know, involvement in this thing. And, and, and what do you, I don't know what you would ever do with that anyway. Now, Mo Brooks, I think has, has a bigger problem, especially if like some others there, he is under an investigation that we believe is occurring. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Um, because if he, if, if that's the case and they find some evidence that he aided these people by way of giving them maps or directions or something Ooh, like that, yeah. then I think, uh, Mo, Mo's got himself, he could be expelled, uh, from, from Congress. Uh, uh, the way, the way our, our right wing nut of the week may be, uh, because if I'm not uh, mistaken, uh, someone has already filed uh, the paperwork to have, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, uh, just evicted from the <laughs> evicted from the house. Uh, they're right. just going to move her out. Uh, that is our uh, our, our QAnon uh, representative from Georgia, uh, Miss uh, Green, uh, who uh, this week and the the reason she was right wing nut of the week is uh, honestly she could be right wing nut of the life yeah. um, because I'm. Uh, it, it is her videos, the, the, you know, the videos that came out this week of her basically okaying, uh, you know, killing Democrats. Um, uh, you know, the, the video that came out of her chasing, uh, Daniel Hogg, uh, you know, the, the second amendment, uh, or the, you know, the, the Parkland shooter kid right. that was, that's there, uh, you know, the gun rights, uh, kid. Um, you know, he, uh, you know uh, that she is man that lady is out of her mind uh in addition to filing the articles of uh, impeachment against joe biden for no reason at all uh and I, i mean just i don't know how we ended up here with her i mean we ended up here i think because unfortunately she was elected the same state that sent Ossoff and Warnock to Georgia for the Democrats, sent this woman as a Republican, you know? So this is, you know, this is, this is unfortunate, you know, but I will say the fact that she was elected is sort of a separate issue from, as you've pointed out, some of the things that she has espoused and done, specifically, specifically the fact that she has repeatedly endorsed, according to news reports, she has repeatedly endorsed executing Democrats in Congress, including the Speaker of the House. Now, she has not, unless she has repudiated her own statements, then I think she needs to be, the House needs to expel her based on that alone. And that ought to be something that should be a bipartisan decision and easy to arrive yeah. at. I, I don't. Yeah, it's it, listen, I, I think it's always tough uh, to to expel someone who has been duly elected. All right. I mean, I think that that is a that's a tough thing to and do. And it should be. It should uh, be a but, tough thing to do. Yeah, and it, and it should be. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It should yeah. be. But 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 you can't have people running around. First of all, you can't have people running around. Uh, that are aiding insurrection. All right. And, and right. I think that uh, however you want to judge that they, these two people, uh, the, there were several people within the house uh, Republican party in the house that, that did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think she is one of mm-hmm. them. Um, and in addition to that, you look at all the other statements and idiots, idiotic things that she has said um, and, and dangerous, dangerous things that she has said. Uh, and I think that it is, it, you're you're well within your rights to at least ask for the process to begin. I, I'll say yeah. that, and then, and then let it go where it needs to go. From but there. Josh, before we get out of here, uh, I still have to ask the question: 
how, how is it reasonable for the House of Representatives and by extension the people of this country to expect uh, two people to coexist in Congress ostensibly to serve the American people when one of them has called for the execution of the other one? I, I can't, I, I mean, listen, I can't justify anything that happens there with her. Okay. I can't. And it, and it's not, you're right. I, 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 a hundred percent would be behind. I'd a hundred percent vote to expel her out of there because it's, it's a, it's atrocious. What, what she said, what she's done, the way she's behaved and nobody who, who acts that way should be anywhere near any level of government. Uh, you know, and, and it just shouldn't happen. And if, if she did, uh, you know, she, you, you got to get her the hell out absolutely. of there. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, speaking of getting the hell out of here, we're going to get the hell out of here. <laughs> uh, hey, it's another fun show. Uh, really, really uh, thank uh, Dr. Michael Sag for coming on and, uh, and you know, for David for putting up with me uh, and for the AFL-CIO for sponsoring this whole thing. And for Alabama Politics This Week, I'm Josh Moon. And? David Person, peace. Peace.